Hello, hello, welcome back everyone. Once again, it's your host, Alfred Faber. One thing I love about this podcast is that talking to these really talented people is such a great learning opportunity, and I learned so much from this guest you're about to hear. Yulia Akaholt, as you'll hear, has worn many hats in sound post-production, doing dialogue editing, supervising sound editing, sound effects editing, and has worked on a billion classic Australian films, such as Samson and Delilah, Little Fish, Tracks, uh, and like every single soundie I've interviewed in Australia, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. She was an absolute wealth of knowledge when it came to dialogue editing and the Australian industry, so I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Yulia Ackerhold, thanks so much for coming in. Um, so, can you tell me a bit about like how you got into sound? Sure. Um, I actually started with a degree in music from the University of Wollongong long, long time ago now. Um, when I came out, I've, I felt like I didn't have the experience to kind of pursue composing. Uh, I'd come to music quite late in life and I was kind of looking for a related industry, I guess, and I'd always loved films. Um, so I was fascinated by sound for film. Um, so I applied for the film school and... Um, even though I didn't have a great deal of experience in film sound, I did have some musical background. I'd done a little bit of radio. Um, so I was fortunate to be accepted to the film school back then. Um, that was a three-year bachelor, bachelor of Arts degree. Um, I graduated in, I think it was 96. Um, and from there, it was a time when um, films generally had assistant sound editors attached to them. Um, as you probably know, it's kind of rare for films to have assistant sound editors these days, which I think is a great shame because it's absolutely the way I got into the industry. I started as an assistant. Um, my very first job was with Wayne Pashley, actually, um, on a little film called The Sugar Factory. Um, I was uh, one of the sound effects assistants at the time. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, and from there I went on to work with um, Sam Petty on a film called The Boys, which was one of the great experiences too um, in my career. I think it's such an interesting, um, unique film and I was just, I had stars in my eyes the whole time, I think. It was a, a really great um, introduction to the industry. Um, so I started out as an assistant on that film. I assisted, there was only one assistant. So I assisted, um, on sound effects and dialogue. Uh, and then I started working with Sam Petty, um, pretty much full time. So I was kind of, um, I did anything that needed doing really. I, I assisted on features. I got coffee, I went out and recorded sound effects and atmospheres. Um, I did a bit of sound editing on some documentaries, um, a couple of ads. So it was a really good, well-rounded um, introduction to what what being a sound editor is. Um, Sam Petty was a great mentor. He's a very, very creative person and he really encouraged me 
to come to him with ideas, to contribute to whatever I was doing, whether it be atmospheres, whether it be finding alt takes for, for the dialogue editor, um, recording atmospheres. Uh, he really encouraged that creativity and um, really grateful to him for that. It was a really great start mm. for me. Um, and then from there, um, Sam rang me one day and said, one of the, the dialogue editor for this film has pulled out. Um, they've got another gig. Why don't you step up? And my instinct was to say, no, I'm not ready. <laughs> but um, he said, yeah, you can do it. So that was how I got into being an, a, a dialogue editor. Mm. Uh, and from there, I, tend, I, I tended to specialise in dialogues from that time onwards. Um, I think partly because Sam um, was such a, the way he approached his soundtracks was as the, an all-encompassing sound design. So he would often cut all the sound effects, do the sound design and just leave me to do the dialogues and he would contribute where he felt he could or wanted to, um, but I was pretty autonomous. And so I did a lot of dialogue editing with him and then when I left his company to go freelance, I kind of slotted into dialogue editing. But I have also cut sound effects particularly with um, Liam Egan, who's a, a well-known mm. sound designer, sound supervisor in, in Australia. Um, and I've cut atmospheres, cut sound effects as well, but dialogue is where I have the most experience. Mm. And are there any kind of like skills you picked up about dialogue editing along the way? Any kind of tricks to how to make a really good dialogue track? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was a long process, actually. Um, the first few films I worked on, I felt a little bit like I was flying in the dark. Um, it's not an it's not an easy job to really understand. Uh, and I, because Sam was so focused on his sound design, um, I really had to go to other dialogue editors and seek advice from them. And luckily. Um, I'd, I'd gone to film school with one lady in particular, Linda Murdoch, who, um, who's a great dialogue editor and she had more experience than me. So I, um, she was a great help to me as I was starting out. Um, one of the big revelations I had was working on a film called um, Somersault, um, Kate Shortland's film, Somersault. Mm. And um, Anthony, Anthony Gray, who actually I think he works in the Netherlands now, but he um, was a very experienced dialogue editor and he was working on a different film at the time but in the room next door to me. Mm. So um, I asked if he had some tips, if he could come and like just show me some things and tell me some stuff. Uh, and he was very generous. He came and sat with me, looked at some of the stuff that I'd done, and really just explained exactly what dialogue editing was. And I, the big revelation was that sync effects are a huge part of the dialogue editing. Oh. And so um, I, I used to just throw a lot of sync effects out 
Mm. when I was beginning because I was yeah. thinking, oh, well, if the effects editors would put this in, but he said absolutely not. Like the sync effects are integral to the sound of the film and if you can get away with using, if the sync effect is, is good, it does the job, absolutely why wouldn't you use it? Mm. So that was a big learning um, tip from him. Mm. Uh, and he also showed me some ways to cut sync effects, um, which was new to me. Um I won't, might not go into the detail because it's probably boring, but um, yeah, he, that was a great help. Cool. And did that um, background in music influence your practice much at all? Yeah, I think it really has actually um, in a few ways. I think with dialogue editing, I think having a musical sensibility is really beneficial for a dialogue editor. Um, I think being able to hear pitch and able, and being able to understand, particularly with ADR and matching ADR, editing ADR and also supervising ADR recording, it can be very useful to, to hear the pitch of what's being delivered and to, to compare it to an original line. And if, if the um, if what we're trying to do is replicate the original performance, pitch can be so important. And to be able to tell the actor, just lift lift your voice up a bit, um, that can make all the difference. Mm. So you've done a bit of ADR as well? I've done a lot of ADR, yeah. 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 Um, on a lot of my, particularly in my, the early part of my career, a lot of the films I worked on were pretty low budget mm. Australian movies mm. and um, on those films there's often just one dialogue editor. Mm. Uh, the dialogue ed- editor has to cut the sync, cue the ADR, supervise the ADR recording, cut the sync. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's actually a really big job. Um, so I, I really, having to having to slog out those small yeah. films and yeah. try and do as good a job as I could was was... I learned a lot in mm. the space of a short time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've done a lot of dialogue supervising and dialogue editing. Yeah. I mean, ADR supervising yeah. and ADR editing. Yeah. Did you work on much ADR where you had to be the supervisor of it, kind of directing it? Um, most of the ADR supervising I've done, the director's been there. Mm. Not always. Mm. Um, sometimes... For example, um, if a director's overseas doing ADR with a major character and there's some minor characters to do back here in Australia, um, the director might uh, be fine with me supervising a re- the recording. Um, but most of the time, particularly because I've tended to work on feature films and not television, um, the director has been there in the room. Mm. But... I've found it really beneficial to be there for many reasons. Um, I sit there with the ADR cue sheets um, and I mark every single take. If the director has a comment, I will mark that on the cue sheet. Um, If the sync looks good, I'll mark that down. I'll, I'll pretty much mark down everything and circle the takes that I think are going to work the best. Mm. And when you get back to um, edit the ADR later, it's so much easier to pull out those takes and that's where you start. 
Um, I also think it's useful for the director to have an ADI editor at the sessions. Mm. Um, partly as a second year for performance. And if I've worked with lots of directors who have been really open to um, open to ideas about performance. I mean, obviously most directors will have very firm ideas themselves, um, but the most exciting experiences I've had are where the director has been open to me making a suggestion and them taking it on board or at least listening and thinking, is that going to work? Mm. And sometimes they might say, yeah, I think that's better. Um, other reasons to be there, of course, is to sort of do the same job as this ADR recordist, but it's always good to have a second ear for projection, for whether something's off mic, um, this watching out for sync, I think is a big thing mm. because directors and actors sometimes just don't, it, it's on. It's low on the list of their priorities because they're thinking about performance, as they absolutely should. Mm. But it's really good to have the ADI editor there to say, yeah, that was a great take for performance, but I really don't think that's going to cut for this reason. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love being in the ADR studio. It's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. And from your experience, what kind of makes a good dialogue editor? Um. You have to be detailed. Mm. <laughs> I think having an attention to detail is really crucial. Um, I also think you have to be really creative. Mm. Um, so, for example, if you're looking for alt takes to try and replace a performance that where the original sync is not usable, um, you might find that all you need to replace is one syllable mm. And to be able to go through all the alt takes, find a syllable that's going to work, cut that in, those sorts of challenges can be really creative. Mm. Um, and you might it might work, but the pitch is wrong. Mm. So you might pitch it up a bit, you might stretch it out a bit. Um, it's very detailed but very creative at the same time. And I think um, I just think having a having a good ear for for inflection for. Um, and I think performance. I think the best mm. dialogue editors have a good ear for performance, mm. um, and 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 also some. You also have to be willing to try really try and understand. I think what the director is after. Mm. I think ultimately that's that's the goal to support the director mm. and to make the film better. So, do you often use alternate takes, even if? Perhaps the sound quality was okay on the original take, but the performance wasn't quite what the director was after. Yeah, there's there's two interesting things about that question. Firstly, that happens a lot in the picture edit. Mm. So the picture editor might go through alt takes and find a, a different performance that both them and the director thinks works best for the scene. Mm. Um, but that can definitely happen in during the dialogue edit as well. Um, a director might come to you and say, um, have we got a different take for this? I, I'm just, they had a cold on the day and this particular take's a bit too nasal or, mm. uh, or I just think that it's too forceful. Can we see if we can find something a bit more gentle? 
or um, as in as in the case with some young actors these days, they they not they they can sometimes fall into the trap of not enunciating words properly. Mm. <laughs> so I have a I'm a stickler for clarity. So mm. if I find there's a take that I can't understand. Mm. Uh, but it's technically fine, I will absolutely try and either fix it with, um, you know, syllables from an alt take or find another take that's clearer. Mm. Um, the thing with alts is you have to be really careful because a director is not going to want to just have the dialogue editor replacing takes here and yeah, there. Yeah. Um, I always play everything that I replace. I play to the director to make sure they're comfortable. I often have... Um, lots of alternatives or at mm. least more than one so that if they really don't like what I've done, I can say, okay, what about this? Or what mm. about that? Like every single person who works in sound in Australia, you were on Mad Max. I was. You were on Fury Road. <laughs> yes, I um, was. And I've heard enough about the sound in that film to know that the dialogue was very tricky, wasn't it? You were supervising a dialogue editor? Yes, I was yeah. one of the supervising dialogue editors. Yeah, and... Um, ADR, yeah, more supervising dialogue editor, yeah. Mm. So what was trying to work with the dialogue on that like? Because I know the vehicles just made everything really difficult. Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it was a massive job, mm. um, as you know. <laughs> Um, from having spoken to George and, and Wayne and his crew. Mm. Um, my job principally on Mad Max Fury Road was to work with George on ADR. Mm. So um, basically ev almost every single line in the film was ADR'd, yeah. regardless of whether um, the intention was to, regardless of whether the ultimate intention was to use that, ADR or not, it had to be ADR'd because, you know, as you've heard from talking to Ben and the others, mm. uh, it was incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to record clean dialogue. Mm. There were a couple of scenes where <laughs> the cars weren't moving, yeah. um, so that dialogue has remained in the film. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, most of my job was working with George and cutting together ADR. Mm. Um, George is an incredibly thorough and detailed director. So he he wanted to make sure he had exhausted all the possibilities. Um, so we actually had all the ADR laid up and he would listen to almost every take. Wow. Um, so you can imagine... Um, the work involved in just preparing that yeah. f to play to him. Mm. Um, we actually had, I think, three dialogue assistants who would wow. prep. Yeah. So they'd get the ADR sessions, they'd lay it all out and they'd prep it so it would be really easy just for me or whoever was sitting with George, but that was mostly me, um, to sit and just play the takes. Mm. And um, it was really... It was really an amazing experience, actually, because the way George works is he likes to hear what you've done first. Mm. So he'll come in, I'll play him the scene or just a section of a scene, and he'll hear it, he'll sort of mull it over, then we'll go through the process of listening to all the takes and mm. he will indicate which 
takes he likes. And then he'll go away. I'll cut together some versions Hmm. from all of his selected takes. Uh, and then he'll come back, we'll sit through, listen listen through to them, mm. keep working. It was an incredibly meticulous um, job. Mm. Um, I was fascinated. I it was you do have to throw your um, ego out the window a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but once you know once I got used to the idea of you know um, of being there to facilitate, George's vision. Mm. Um, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Mm. Cool. I'd love to talk about um, a recent film that was. I don't. Was it? I don't know if it was the first feature that you were supervising sound editor on tracks. Mm. Yes. So that mm. was yes. That was the first film I was supervising sound editor on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the experience of working on that like? That was one of my favourite experiences mm. of my career. Um, it was a it was bittersweet, I have to say, because the reason I was kind of promoted to supervising sound editor was because um, the the supervising sound editor Andrew Plain was very ill at the time, right. um, so he needed someone to kind of step up. Mm. So I have a co credit with him mm. on the film. Um, but it was really amazing. And uh, working with John Curran, the director, was just fantastic. He's such a, he's so, it's such a challenge, but such an enjoyable challenge to work with him because he's so clear about what he wants, but he's also really open to collaborating with the craftspeople. So um, it was I, I worked with him really closely on the dialogue because I also edited a lot of the dialogue. Mm. Um, I got to be in the mix, which was an amazing experience. One of the other great things about working on tracks was it's such an amazing story. Mm, mm. Um, and Robin Davidson's still alive. Oh, really? she, I didn't yeah. actually meet her, but yeah. she did come to the premiere of the film and I heard yeah. her talking about it and... Um, mm. I believe Mia Wasikowska, who played Robin Davidson in the movie, met with Robin and, mm. um, you know, spoke to her as part of the preparation for the yeah. for the film. Uh, and I think Mia did just such a lovely job. I don't know if you've seen the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah, I just think it's a beautiful film. It is. Um, it is. It's so contemplative. Mm. And one of the real interesting parts of working on the movie was trying to it's a bit of a challenge because, for example, um, the main character doesn't talk a lot during the yeah. film. She's alone in the desert with mm. her camels. Mm. Um, so part of the challenge as um, a dialogue editor was to try and enhance her performance or to give her character a little bit of life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we spent a lot of time with Mia recording ADR breaths Oh, right, and yeah. just little um, little punctuations mm. uh, at the end of a scene um, and often quite subtle. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, we did a lot of that to the point where I think John got a little bit over the breaths. <laughs> I remember <laughs> being in the mix and at one point he yeah. said, can we please just not have a breath here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Something that I noticed about that film is um, heaps of films that take place in the desert 
uh, have this really kind of sparse, minimal soundtrack and kind of creates this atmosphere of fear, I guess. But the soundtrack of tracks is so full of music. It's just constant, really beautiful music. Yeah. And it makes you kind of deadens the impact of uh, being in such a hostile landscape. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's it was a bit of a bold choice to have so much music in some ways, mm-hmm. but I think um, the style of the music did sort of, even though it was quite gentle at times, it did help to propel the film forward mm. a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think the the atmosphere of the desert was interesting as well because John really didn't want that sound of buffeting wind. He mm. did. He really didn't like that sound of what he thought sounded like wind on a microphone. Yeah. So um, Mark Franken, who edited sound effects on the film, mm. he had to choose his sounds really carefully mm. uh, because John tended to like the kind of more wispy um, part of the spectrum when it came to winds and and let's face it, when you're out in the desert, wind is really all you hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think... I think what helped to give the film, the soundtrack, some interest was the music, which, as I said, I think the music also helped to give the camels a bit of character. Mm. Um, It had that kind of slightly jaunty Mm. feel. Um, John Simpson did the foley and I thought he did an amazing job with the footsteps of the camels. He really gave that some depth and Mm. gave the film some of that low end that was missing in the winds. Yeah. I was going to say the camels had so much character and yes. the especially their like honking and the sounds they made like and I guess cuz they were quite central characters in Absolutely. the film was yeah. there like um did you guys do a lot of recordings of actual camels or was it the kind of thing where you make effects out of other sources um we were really lucky in that the sound recordist rec- did a lot of recording of mm. those camels, mm. which was really, and those specific camels. Yeah. So yeah. we really spent a lot of time matching the sound of the camels to the individual. Mm. Um, and also I think Mark Franken at the time had worked on a film recently that also had camels in it. So he had a library as well of various camel sounds that were recorded specifically for a movie. So we did have a lot to play with, which was really amazing. Mm. And I think particularly one of the camels, I think its name was, I can't remember its name now, I think it was Doogie. Doogie, yeah, Yeah. it's Doogie. Yeah, Yeah. he had the most funny, (laughs) funny voice. It was really hilarious. Mm. So you've done uh, two other films that you've worked on that I love very de- you've done a lot of desert films and, <laughs> i guess i have <laughs> yeah but they've got very different tones like samson and delilah and strangerland yes so can you tell me about your work on samson and delilah yeah so i edited the atmospheres on samson and delilah oh, okay. that was kind of my job mm. i didn't do the dialogues mm. um 
It was, yeah, again, I feel very lucky to have worked on some great films. Mm. Um, Samson, Samson and Delilah is definitely up there as one of the one of the goodies. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a challenge though because trying to trying to give that uh, monotonous landscape some variety is mm. quite tricky. So I ended up, I found myself looking in the frame for something to give a point of interest. Mm. So if there was a little bush down the left, I'd try and sort of feature that or mm. if there was, a, you know, a, a, a big kind of church building with a corrugated iron roof, I'd, I'd try and find something to... Mm you know, a, a kind of wind that might be filtering through metal or um, or try and vary the scenes. So maybe in a scene where there was a big sweeping landscape, I might try and and use a, a wispy a wispy sort of sound coupled with, you know, um, I don't know, some something with a bit of bottom end to give it a bit of, space yeah yeah um i learned a fair bit about atmos recording on that film actually i'm mean, not mm. recording um about atmos editing on that film because mm. uh, i really found it useful to just experiment with placing different types of sounds in a 5.1 environment yeah yeah um yeah it was really interesting I, f- I found that by by putting some of the more wispy sounds in the surrounds and leaving the the more featured sounds in the in the lefts and rights, mm. and and some of the grungier sounds in the centre to help the dialogue uh, worked really well. And what was Warwick Thornton like to work with? Because I love his films. Yeah, he's he's a cool guy. Yeah, a really cool guy. I actually went to film school with Warwick. Oh, really? Yeah, he was in your. He was year. in my year. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So he was he was a cinematographer. Yeah. Um. And yeah, he's always been a very cool guy. <laughs> he's very laid back. Yeah. Um, only interferes when he feels like he's got something to contribute. Yeah. Um, he's one of those people I think who surrounds himself with people he trusts. Yeah. And lets them do their thing. Comes in, does he likes to come in and review stuff? In my mm-hmm. experience. Um, and if he likes what he hears, he goes, "Yeah, cool." <laughs> yeah. Um, but obviously he's you know obviously if there's something that he doesn't like or something he thinks is missing or whatever he'll say so mm. um but yeah he's very he he i think he knows what the people who are working for him can do mm. uh and trusts that they're going to do that job mm. um yeah he's he's great to work with cool and then there's Strangerland, which has a very different tone. It's very ominous and kind of scary almost. It's like a, it's almost like a horror hidden in a drama. Yeah. Yeah. So were you effects editor on that? Yeah. So I cut the effects mm. and um, the sound designer, Liam Egan, he edited the atmospheres. Mm. I mean, obviously there's always a bit of crossover. Mm. Um, he and I have worked together on sound effects on a number of projects and he kind of works out at the beginning where he thinks our strengths will play in best. Um, In this case, he had a lot of, he'd been to um, 
the Philippines mm. uh, just recently before we started on that film and while I was there there was a typhoon yeah so he got his recorder out and he oh. had some awesome <laughs> awesome um yeah. wind sound effects and I th- atmospheres and I think he a really wanted to use those yeah. and b I think he thought that uh, uh approaching this the sound design from an atmosphere perspective uh would work really well from for the film mm. so he cut the um, atmospheres and I did sound effects on that film mm. cool one of your recent films was a documentary. Yes. I think. Yeah. Um, what was it called again? The Last Goldfish. Ah, uh, yeah. And what was, what's your approach with working on documentary, like different to working on fiction? Um, yeah, interesting question. Um, to be honest, I haven't done a lot of documentaries. Mm. Um, but I've got to say, The Last Goldfish was. I keep saying this, but it was a really amazing project to work on. Um, I basically did The Last Goldfish. I was working full-time on not in the film industry at the time mm. and um, I, I did The Last Goldfish kind of on weekends, in the evenings, wow. whenever I had time uh, because basically the the producer rang me and said, I've got this documentary, would love you to be involved, um, have a look at the rough cut. And I looked at the rough cut and, first of all, it was a film about a woman who'd migrated to Australia in the 1970s mm. on a on a, sh- a ship called the SS Australis. Mm. And it turns out I came out to Australia on the same boat really? a few years later. Wow. So I had photos of me and my sister on the deck of the boat and I wow. sent it to them and I, I said, I really, really want to do this. <laughs> yeah. I feel like yeah. it was meant to be. Yeah. Um, so that was a really interesting film because the documentary has pretty much wall-to-wall voiceover. Mm. There's hardly a second that doesn't have voiceover in it. Mm. And the voiceover is um, spoken by the filmmaker, Sue Mm. Goldfish. It's a really personal story. Um, It's the story of her trying to find out about her dad's heritage, basically. Mm. Um, Her dad was German. He um, escaped from Nazi Germany Mm. in just before World War II. he was a refugee in Trinidad and Sue was born in Trinidad mm. and then they came to Australia. She didn't even know that she was Jewish until wow. she was like, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was, she was like a teenager. Yeah. So to find that out and then to, and her dad was quite old at the time as well. He, mm. he had her when he was quite old. So she started to um, interview him about mm. his time and, you know, back when, back in Germany when he was a Jew in in Nazi Germany and he was quite reluctant to talk about it and, and then he passed away. Right. Um, so the film is basically about her tracing back her dad's heritage and it's a very personal story. Mm. And so the voiceover had to be, it had to be her, it couldn't be a narrator, mm. but she's not an actor. Mm. So a huge part of that, of the sound design for that documentary was recording her mm. um, in consultation with the editor, Martin Fox, mm. and um, there was a script editor, Louise Wadley, who was also in on the ADR, rec- on the voiceover recordings. 
Uh, and just sculpting that voiceover was mm. a real main feature of the yeah. sound design. Yeah. Um, and it was tricky because, as I said, she's not an actor mm. and we had to um, – she had this tendency to put pauses in that weren't natural. Yeah. So that was one of the big challenges was mm. to try and identify where that was happening and to mm. sort of try and get her to to say that – to deliver the line – in a way that flowed a bit better. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of recording and a lot of editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was really fun and mm. I got on so well with Sue. She's just such an amazing person to be around. She's just mm. fun and yeah. inclusive and um, cutting the sound effects in a very short space of time was tricky. Mm. Um, we, uh, we got someone in called Mick Barrasso at the very last minute. He had a week. To, mm. And he was a godsend, mm. um, and he, he had a huge challenge of trying to cut as much of the of the sound effects as he could in the mm. space of a week for a feature length documentary. So mm. he had his work cut out for him. But yeah. I think we came up with something that we all we're really happy with. Mm. Cool. So, um, kind of to wrap it up, um, you mentioned at the beginning about how there's less opportunities for assistant sound editors these days do you think it's kind of more difficult to come into the industry these days to come into sound yeah i definitely think there's less opportunities for people to get a a foothold in the industry um i think the way a lot of people I know who are younger than me uh, have come in as by volunteering, uh, Mm. coming on as an attachment, um, unpaid, um, which is, it's a shame that it has to be that way. I think it it was a great culture where there was always at least one assistant sound editor, if not multiple, Mm. um, on the bigger budget films. And, And it was such a great way to learn. Um, and because you're getting paid, you feel like you're contributing, you know, your your time is worth something. Um, obviously, you know, um, being an attachment on a film, obviously you are still extremely valued. Mm. And, you know, um, I've worked with some great people like Tara Webb, started out as an attachment with Andrew Plain, who I mentioned earlier, and, you know, obviously was was very talented and she's now you know one of the, one of the one of the good editors in Australia I reckon um so that there is a way but I just think it requires more work less pay <laughs> <laughs> and just dedication yeah. and yeah it's it's tough do you think that's indicative of like the film industry in Australia in general at the moment yeah Mm. I do. I think it's a, the Australian film industry is a tough one. I was thinking about it on the way over. Um, I think partly the problem is I'm not sure that all the films being made are the sorts of films that people want to see. Mm. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. I think budgets are another part of the problem. Mm. So there's two. there's not enough money to go around. So... Budgets are being spread quite thin, which means people aren't given the time and the money to do what's required to make a good film. Mm. Um, 
I think there's not enough government support. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, because the industry is so small in Australia, it's really impossible for it to be self-sustaining. Mm. Um, you know, we've only got 20 million or however many people in the country. It's it's difficult to have a thriving film industry. Mm. Um, I think before, previously, like in the 80s and early 90s, Australians loved to go and see Australian films back then. Mm. But now, you know, a lot of people just go and see the big action films and those little films don't get the audience that they mm. used to get. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what the answer is. Mm. I think, you know, it would be interesting to see more streaming services coming here to do post-production. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah. And I think that is starting to happen perhaps. Uh, I know that Netflix have put their feelers out. Mm. I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't really know for sure, but, um, you know, I th I'm pretty sure that they've put some feelers out here and there. Mm. Um, yeah, I do think it's a tough industry at the moment. Thanks to Lily Ford for stills, and as always, thanks to John David Legulon for music and sound design. Thanks again, Yulia, for coming in. Uh, have a great day and hope to see you next time.